Welcome to the Freedom City Church podcast, a podcast designed to help your faith thrive. We hope you enjoy today's message. Because today I'm going to preach on the book of Titus. Hands up if you have ever, or thumbs up if you have ever read the book of Titus. Put in the comments, have a look at it. Let me know, have you read the book of Titus? Um, and do you, do you know what it's about, like, just off by heart? Because, to be honest, this week, when I was preparing the message, I was, God was saying, preach on Titus, preach on Titus, preach on Titus. And I was like, oh, sweet, I'll preach on Titus. And I, um, I took the story of Philemon into my head, and I was like, oh, so I'm going to preach on, on this part. Paul writes and sends him back to his, his master, and I, I totally mixed up the stories. But so when I actually sat down and read through a Titus, it's only three chapters, so you can do it in about five minutes tops, you know. Um, when I read through Titus, I realized this is such a powerful, pertinent message, particularly in the, 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 the vein of heaven on earth. What does it look like? What are the fundamental and foundational principles that we can live by that shows people, shows the earth, what the reality of heaven is. And so we're going to jump into Titus because Titus is a good place to start. Like I was saying, the book overview, if you look at that little um, thing that I've shown you, the book overview um, in the Freedom Family page, um, it gives you a little bit of a description about the book itself. And the book is an epistle. And if you don't know what an epistle is, it's basically, it's just a letter. It is a letter, an instructional letter that has been written by an author sent to, in this circumstance to a church. The, the author is Paul, and Paul has written the letter um, to give to his companion, his, uh, someone who, uh, who, who works, not works, someone who partners with him, um, and he sent him to the island of Crete. The Greek uh, way to say it is Crete. Crete, but the way that we call it now, uh, say it nowadays in the English language, is Crete. And Crete is the most, the largest and most populous island in Greece. So what Paul is doing is Paul is writing a letter that he has given to Titus to take to the island of Crete, the largest and most populous island in Greece. And what he was, uh, the purpose of the letter was he was to. Titus was visiting Crete because they, Paul had established some house churches on the island of Crete. And so Paul was sending Titus because Crete was actually a place that was infamous for sin and for corruption. And so Titus needed to go back to these churches because back in the day, you couldn't just Zoom, call, text, whatnot. You had to actually write a letter or go yourself. Paul was like, Titus, you need to go to Crete and you need to talk to these, these house churches and you need to talk to the leaders of these house churches and you need, we need to restore godly order. And that took place by um, theological the, theology, doctrine, uh, realignment, but also through actually replacing the leaders of the house churches. So Paul has sent this letter with Titus to go to Crete. So like I was saying, Crete 
that Crete was known for sin and corruption. I want you to get that. Like, if there's one thing you need to understand straight out, is that Crete was bad. Crete was bad. Crete was so bad. It was infamous. It was. It had a reputation. If you could think of a suburb or a place in Perth, and you're like, that place has a reputation. I don't want to go there. Now, times that by 10 and times the population by about 20. And what you've got is something getting closer to what Crete would have looked like. It is insane. Cretan culture was actually so notorious in the ancient world that they actually had a phrase using the Cretan word. Have you ever heard someone say, you Cretan? I actually saw it last night when we were watching an episode of Midsummer Murders, to be honest. They're like, the guy's like, you Cretan. And I was like, ah, oh, I actually just read about this, you know. But basically, the one of the Greek words, kretizo, say that, kretizo, kretizo, meant, get this, to be a liar. So to, to kretizo means to be a liar, to be a Cretan. So that was how notorious their, their uh, reputation was, that they were built on a house of lies. They were a corrupt, sinful um, uh, island. And basically, they were so uh, well, well known as being corrupt, but they were also such a strategic place for Paul's missionary journeys because they were the largest... Uh, the largest, most populous island in Greece, they had so many harbours along the island that they were able to go to many different islands that are and places and countries that bordered the Mediterranean Sea. So Paul's like, we need house churches. We need churches in Crete. But it's a difficult situation. So Paul's writing a very blunt letter. He's like, I'm going to tell you something. You need to listen. What he is, what he is dealing with is people who were, were. There's actually this uh, historically is well known that um, a lot of Cretans were mercenaries. The men had a passing uh, as mercenaries, assassins. Like so, they're they're liars, they're corrupt, they're greedy, and they're killers. So this is, this is a place that is just somewhere that we you wouldn't want to go it was unsafe plagued by violence and sexual corruption as well so the, the problem though was that because paul couldn't be there the whole time when paul went away or the house leaders were left to their own devices because they were a missionary like a place like so they went out and they planted a church new church their house church because they needed they didn't have the constant guidance of Paul, it was very intermittent, what had happened during the time that Paul wasn't there was that corrupt Cretan leaders started to influence the uh, Cretan house churches. They were, they were called Jewish Cretans, and the Jewish Cretans started to say to people, you need to be of the circumcision way, which basically means you need to be of the law. You need to do something to prove that you are saved by Christ. But the thing about this book is this book, the period that this was written in, is called something called the Age of Grace. The Age of Grace is the period of time when Jesus, after Jesus died, where salvation 
has become available to all people. And the period of the age of grace will finish when Christ returns. So this was part of the age of grace. So we didn't need to be part of the circumcision way, but it was all about grace. So, but this, these people got in there, these corrupt Cretan leaders. So if you have your Bible, let's go to Titus 1, verses 10 to 16. And we're going to read about um, how Paul describes these, these people. Uh, just give you a quick second to get your Bible open. What are, you, what are you reading from today? Are you reading from the ESV, NIV, NLT, Message, Red Letter Bible? Someone told me about the Blue Letter Bible the other day. There's so many different ones, you know, but I'm, I'm going to read now from Titus 1, verses 10 to 16. It says, For those, there are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group, the Cretan, Jewish Christian leaders. They must be silenced because they're disrupting whole households <clears throat> by teaching things they ought not to teach. And that for the sake of dishonest gain. So there was a lot of financial gain for um, corrupt uh, religious leaders back in the day. One of Crete's own prophets has said it. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. This saying is true. This is Paul writing this, by the way. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so they will, that they will be sound in faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to, merely, or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. That's a, just that, that one of those last sentences. They claim to know God, but their actions deny Him. That's something to dwell on, to think on, to hold on to. We'll unpack that a bit later. But Paul is calling out the Cretan leaders, the Jewish Cretan leaders, but also the house church leaders here. And Paul has sent Titus to set things straight. So the, if we jump back, though, from what I just read, the opening of the letter, Paul's opening statement in the letter he sent with Titus goes as such. So Titus 1, verses 1 to 3. Titus 1, verses 1 to 3. Titus says, it says, uh, Paul writes, Paul, so he's identifying himself, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, I'll cut it off there, um, but this statement here, which God, who does not lie, that statement there is very, very, um, in Paul's letters, it's not common for Paul to just to say straight out, who does not lie. God who does not lie. He's making a point. He's getting something across to the Corinthian house churches. He's saying, we need to take notice of this. Why? Because this is an underlying theme. This is something that is festering within the house churches. This is something that I'm seeing. This is something that is cultural, that you, your people are liars. You lie. There's lots of lying. They're, the Cretans 
were known for their lives. So Paul addresses it straight away. And the thing about that, and one of the reasons why the Cretans were known for being liars was the Cretan churches, uh, they had started to assimilate the ideas about Jesus, the Christian God, with their ideas about the Greek gods they grew up with, specifically Zeus. So imagine a, an island, a place that has not been um, uh, heard the gospel before, but they are open to gods. They, they have Zeus, they have all these uh, Greek gods. All of a sudden what happens is Christ comes in and they start to say, all right, you've got the Christian God and you've got the Greek God. And they start to mesh ideas about them because they, because of the guidance of the corrupt Jewish leaders, they start to mesh the ideas about Christ. And the thing is, looking at Zeus, so if you're looking at like these, these Cretan Christians, they're looking at, all right, I worship Jesus, but I also worship Zeus. Jesus and Zeus. I grew up with Zeus. It's cultural. It's something I know. It's my worldview. So they had assimilated it, but Cretan people were so proud of Zeus. They're like, yeah, Zeus, he's born, born in our island. You know how like people like oh, Daniel Ricciardo, the F1 racer, yeah, he's born in um, Perth. Yeah, Daniel Ricciardo. And we all write about Daniel Ricciardo and we're all so proud of him. And like, oh yeah, Chris Hemsworth is Australian. It's kind of like that. They were so proud that Zeus was born in the island. And they actually would tell stories about Zeus's underhanded character. And they'll tell it proudly. The thing is, I don't know if you know much about Greek mythology, but Zeus was notoriously known for seducing women and lying to get his way. Zeus was a womanizer and a liar. I'm pretty sure Britney Spears wrote a song about this. But Paul wanted to get across to the Cretan house church to the people who had assimilated the beliefs of the Christian and the Greek God, he wanted to say, no, Jesus, God, who does not lie, is completely different than Zeus, than your gods, the gods that you worship. Jesus, God, Christ, completely different. Don't even touch them with a 10-foot pole. They, not, they can't even be mentioned in the same sentence. Why? Because God's basic character traits, come on, are faithfulness and truth. God's basic character traits are faithfulness and truth, which means that the Christian way of life should also be about faithfulness and truth, not about womanizing and lying, seducing, corruption. No, the way that you live, the way that you are, uh, the example that you're following is not right. It is wrong. It is corrupt. So Paul says this and he, he, he hits them hard. And he goes on in Titus 1 verses 12. He says, one of our Crete's own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars. I read this earlier. Evil brutes and lazy gluttons. And this was like I was saying because of the corrupt influence of the leaders. But Paul says, then goes on to say that actually because of the corruption of the leaders, they're starting to influence the households of Christian uh, Cretans. And it goes on and talks about in chapter 2, verses 5 to 10. Uh, you can read it, but 
Paul identifies three ways that the corruption of outside culture and Cretan culture has influenced the way that the Christians are seen by the people around him. He says that because you follow Cretan culture, because you lie, because you're corrupt, because you don't live to a higher standard, what is happening now is that the declaring of the message of Jesus Christ, the gospel, has been discredited. He then goes on to say that now your non-Christian neighbours have good cause to make evil accusations about Christianity. And he finally says, all of this makes the teaching of Jesus Christ extremely unattractive. Have you thought about that, your own life? The way that I live my life, do I make Christianity attractive? Do the way, I, the way that I treat people, the way that I respond to crisis, my integrity, my honesty, do I make Christianity attractive or do I make it unattractive? Do I make people look at the way that I live my life, look at my household and say, I want what he's got. I want what they've got. Or do I say, what's the point? You know, like there's more material instant gratification through following Zeus, living that way. You know, Paul believed so strong that the gospel needed to prove its redemptive power in the public square if it was, if it was truly going to transform Cretan culture. Let me say that again. Paul believed that the gospel needed to prove its redemptive power in the public square if, if it was truly going to transform Cretan culture. Paul wanted Christians to participate in public life, but for their lives and for their homes to represent the counterculture that is found in Jesus Christ. This would show the devotion that the Christians had to a different value system of devotion to the one and only God. God wants us to be in public, the public square. He wants us to be around people. He wants us to, to know people. He wants us to live publicly. But if we don't live according to the, the standards of Christ, we can start to make Christianity unattractive. We can start to cause people to say, what's the point? Why would I go for that if I've got something easier over here? You know, it's, it's challenging. But then Paul goes on and highlights in Titus 2 verses 11 to 14. Paul says, But for the grace of God has appeared to offer, has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ, who gave up himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that is very own, eager to do what is good. God wants you pure. God wants you to live a pure life. God wants you to do good. God wants you to be able to say no to evil. God wants you to be righteous and to live self-controlled. God wants this. So what did he give us? He gave us grace. He gave us grace. The, the grace that forgives. The, two, the two-sided coin. Grace is a two-sided coin. Grace that forgives sin 
but then grace that empowers, empowers to, us to overcome difficulties, hardships, causes, allows us to have self-control. Paul is saying to the Cretan church, do better. I was talking to someone the other day, and one of the things that like, I'm, I'm kind of resolved to is that we, we look at the past, we look at where we've gone wrong, we look at the things that um, where we've stuffed up, when people have hurt us, but we only have the present and the future. The past is done. It is what it is. But we can always will and decide that I want to do better. And this is what Paul is saying to the Cretans. Do better. Because you can and because the grace of God will empower you. I think that's an amazing Amazing example that Paul's given is that I'm asking you to do something and I'm giving you the instructions, I'm giving you the, the how-to to reach that standard. Because Paul then goes on in chapter 3 of Titus, Paul says, is declaring that Christians should be known as the ideal citizens. You and I should be known as the ideal citizens. What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, let's look in Titus 3 verses 1. It says, remind them, and this is a difficult one, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be, re to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Who does not like what I just said? Well, I didn't say it. Paul said it. Paul said it. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. That is confronting. That is super, super confronting because I could probably tick off a few of those things that I have not done in the past week. You know, I think... This, is a, this was difficult for, for the Cretans as well. Because they were saying, well, you're asking me to do this. Yeah, tell me how to do it. And like I was saying, the grace. And we can read again about this grace that God has given us in Titus 3, verses 4 to 7. It says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing and regeneration, washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified or being made righteous by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. God loves you. Jesus died for you. And you are a new creation. You have been born again regenerated and renewed when the Holy Spirit entered your life in the time at that time of salvation. There's nothing else that you need but to then jump back up, be obedient, listen to God, grow. This is what Paul is saying. It's like that you, you don't the odds aren't stacked against you. The odds are for you. You have the Holy Spirit, the power of the everlasting God within your being. The odds are for you. So Paul is saying, 
do better, do better church. Because Paul believes that the spirit empowered faithfulness to Jesus would aid in declaring God's grace to the whole of the world. That it should overflow from their house churches in Crete to other parts of the world. Paul wanted the churches to be agents of transformation within their communities. Not by creating culture wars or assimilating to the Cretan way of life, but by wisely participating in culture by rejecting the corrupt and embracing the good. I think this is something that we have to be very cautious of, is that when we look at the culture of the world around us, we can be afraid, and we talk about this term, to be part of the world, uh, to be in the world, but not of it. You know, and what happens is we start to, we take that out of context because that, what that actually means is to, to be in the world, but not antagonistic to God. And antagonism to God is found under sin. So because of Jesus, we're in the world, but we're not antagonistic to God because sin has been dealt with. But we can fall into corrupt ways. We can fall into shortcuts. We can choose the not best option. So what Paul is saying to us is that you have the wisdom, the guidance, and the light before you that goes before you, that the lamp that lights your feet that says, reject the bad, embrace the good. Reject that which is not of God and embrace that which is. So God is saying, Paul is saying, devote yourself to Jesus and the common good. The common good is an interesting term because it's biblical, but it's also a sociological term. And it talks about the betterment of humanity, holistic betterment of humanity. And if you do a quick Google of it, there's papers that are written on it. But the common good is something that we have to look at and realize that the Bible is so important in the good that happens in the world. Christianity, that Christ, you look at it, there's all these charities that have been started on the back of inspiration by the Holy Spirit. We have to realize that the common good is not a term for us to balk at, but us to realize that Christ initiated and caused us to devote ourselves to the common good of all of humanity. So, and through that, we show the beauty of the message of our saving God. It's such a powerful letter. Like Titus, if you're going to do a, a Bible study, go and jump on to Titus. The Bible Project does heaps on it. You can go and you can find just so much commentary on it. But I encourage you, really get into this book and unpack it. Because if you're looking and you're struggling at your workplace and you're asking, how do I do better? This book will give you inspiration. So a few questions though. What does it mean for us today? Looking back at this book, what, how does this help us look forward? Well, what the Cretans did wrong was that they brought Jesus down to Zeus's level. Zeus doesn't have a level. Zeus is a joke. They brought Jesus down to Zeus's level. The gospel was unattractive because people were living lives indicative of Zeus and not of Jesus. But like we heard earlier, Zeus was not a good person. He was a liar and a womanizer. So look at yourself. When we give worship in our lives and focus to people and idols who are not Christ, we will start to reproduce the fruit of their lives and live to their standard. Does that make sense? If we focus so much on something that we desensitize ourselves 
to what is wrong about what they're doing or what is not godly. And we start to assimilate and um, reciprocate what they are doing. You know, it says in the Bible, some follow Paul, some follow Apollos, but I follow Christ. I follow God who makes it all grow. Paul is wanting us to know that you do not follow anyone other than Christ. Do not follow any example other than Christ, because Christ is only, is only doing what he sees the Father doing. So Christ is not following anyone except the Father. You know, and this is reciprocating because the Holy Spirit is here now empowering us to follow Jesus. He's following Christ, the Father. He's empowering the Holy Spirit. He's within us. And it's this amazing picture of the Trinity that says that we, the three in one, the Trinity, will help you live and do better. You know, so like I was saying before, I mentioned earlier, what in your life doesn't represent Christ? What does not resemble Christ? And the next question is, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to change? What are you going to look at and, and say, well, actually, my life impacts the people around me? You know, one of the things that um, I'm very cautious of, I know this is some people, this might not be a big issue. And, but for me, like, I just realized that I, I can't swear. I just don't swear. The reason being, sometimes it, like, you, sometimes it happens by accident, you know, when you have a heart attack and all. Um, but like, say for, like, if someone's looking at me and saying, you're a pastor, you represent Christ, but why are you swearing? Like, it, in my heart, I might have made up or resolved that it's, it, it's not a, a salvation-impacting thing. But for someone else, it might be. You know, the way that we live our life, we have to realize that I am Christ, or I am the representation of Christ to some people. So the way that I live my life needs to go from this standard to this standard to this standard to continue doing better and better and better because we can if you've got air in your lungs you can do better god can continue to sanctify you <coughs> my second thing is that grace trains us to participate not to assimilate people like i was saying are watching what we are doing you've got to realize that christianity is one of the few religions if not the only that says that we are the only way christ is the only way we declare to have found the way, the truth, and the life, which is a bold statement because people, the other religions that say, like, talk about universalism, that there are many ways to eternal life. Whereas Christianity says, no, no one comes to the Father except through me. So people are like, well, you're saying you're the only people. You're saying you're the only way. Prove it. Show me that your life is, is so transformed that is that has the evidence, compelling evidence, that your Christ is the only way. You got let's think about that. Like it's it's like someone saying that like I am the best basketball player in the world, yet I am unable to show people that I can dunk. I can I have the hops to get up and dunk it, or saying that I'm the best artist in the world and I, I don't know how to how to sketch a, a drawing or saying that I'm the best chef in the world and I don't know how to, I don't know how to cook a medium rare steak. You know, it's like when, when we are declaring that God is the way, the truth and the life, people then saying, show me, show me. 
this compelling evidence of the transformation that he has had in your life. And that's pressure. That is hard. That is hard. And there's a, there's a sacrifice. There's a, a cost for that. But grace empowers us and shows us that the eternal life is so worth it. So worth it. And this is the problem. When you look at Crete and the people who were following Christ in Crete, it was really grim. The gospel was super unattractive to other people. Belief in Jesus was totally divorced from behavior, both in private and public life. So believers were, unbelievers were turned off to the gospel and rightly so. And why would people reject Zeus in favor of Jesus if there was no compelling evidence of transformation in the lives of Jesus' followers? How do we reach this standard? How do we reach this higher standard? What is the compelling evidence of transformation in your life? And how can we be part of the world, in the world, but not part of it? How can we participate but not assimilate? You know, through God's grace alone. Come on. The grace of God. If you have not read into the grace, let's read into the grace. Let's start saying, God, what does your grace mean? And John, it talks about there is grace upon grace. We need to start saying, how does your grace empower me, God? Why is your grace sufficient for my every need? How am I going to live to this greater standard? Because we don't live according to preachers, pastors, or leaders, but through Christ alone. So we need a revelation of Christ, of God's grace. You do not live to my standard. You know, Paul at times says, follow Christ as I, follow me as I follow Christ. But Paul has a, a pretty good claim to say that. And Molly preached on that a while ago. I'll let you go back and look at that. Um, she might be able to remind us which message it was part of. But, you know, for us, we have to understand that you look to Christ. Christ is your focus. Christ is your example. But Christ is the one who gives you the grace to reach that example, reach that standard. And this is an important one as well, this next point. We don't need to retreat from culture or wage a cultural war to do this. You know, one of the things that we could be afraid of is to be like, well, the best thing that I can do is just hide away. Or I can start to, like, rage against people. Or I can start to post on Facebook, all these things. You know, Paul's not saying, Paul, Facebook wasn't there back in the day. And it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a, the bane of our society, to be honest, that so many people have the ability to, to have opinions so widely broadcast. But back in the day, your opinion, your life, the way you lived your life was your greatest example, your greatest declaration. The way that you lived your life is so much more important than a Facebook status. So much more important than fighting against culture or, wage or hiding away and saying, I do not want culture to taint me. No, we have to go in to the public square, we are to live out a countercultural gospel in reliance on the Spirit because our friends, our neighbors, our co workers, our baristas, these people need to see us live a life that is above it all. They need us because there is a redemptive theology showing them the beauty of the message of our saving God. How do we show people that Christ is good? By living empowered lives, spirit-filled spirit righteous lives that show people that there is a better way 
there is one way and it there's compelling evidence for it. So I want to leave you with two final thoughts. I hope that you're enjoying this book of Titus so far. I'm going, I'm rushing through it uh, for time's sake, but I, I'd love to unpack this further more with you at another time. But my, my, fair, my final two thoughts is, one, the fly in the wall test. What would, what would a fly on the wall see in your life? What would they see if they were to see you every day, if they were just on the wall seeing what you do throughout the day in your house? Would they see Christ in the way that you treat your family? Would they see Christ in the way that you handle your finances? Would they see Christ in what you do when you're alone? Would they see Christ in your marriage? Would they see Christ in how you use your time? Would they see Christ in what you're watching on TV? If there's a, there's a fly in the wall, someone was able to see your life behind closed doors, would it represent Christ? Would it be the same in public as it is in private? You know, what would they see in life, in your life, that is so countercultural that would make them say, I need Jesus? You know, what would, in your life, would make someone say, I need what they have? I need that Jesus. Another few, like, just things to think of is like, are you quick to forgive? Do you treat others with kindness and respect? Do you pray and worship God in your home? Do you believe for miracles in your home? Do you open your home and welcome people in? Is your home warm and a place of love? You know, I think we need to ask ourselves that we, we have the way, the truth, and the life. We have the Holy Spirit. The odds are for us. So we need to be at the forefront of what it means to be a good citizens, good people, transformed people, empowering people. We need to be at the forefront of that. And that's a challenge. The last thought I want to leave you with is, is something called the ethics of Christ-likeness. Because earlier on, uh, I did mention it, but I'm talking about God wants us to live by the teaching and the ethics of Christ. Ethics basically refers to your decision-making, what is right and what is wrong. And with this, um, earlier in my message, it, it, God, it says that, uh, I didn't mention this, but I went over this, but it, I, there's a part where I was supposed to say that God can train, literally educate us on how to live out the teachings and the ethics of Christ. And I want to bring up just two ethical theories um, for you. And one of them is called consequentialism. The other one is called virtue ethics. Consequentialism is a theory that says whether something is good or bad dependent on the outcome. So this is good or bad dependent on whether the outcome is good or bad. But virtue ethics is person rather than action based. It looks at the virtual or moral character of the person carrying out an action rather than the ethical duties and rules or the consequences of particular actions. You know, Christ was, the ethics of Christ was based within his character. The ethics of Christ was based within his character. Everything like he did, he, he did because he saw the Father doing it. Everything he did was intrinsic. It was based within who he was, not what he thought would be a good idea. Not aiming to get the best outcome, but to live out his life. To live out his life. 
Yeah, sometimes we're driven by consequentialism, by the consequences or the outcome. You might rock up to church and serve, but you might have the world's worst attitude ever. But because you served God, you might say it was a good thing. But God cares about your attitude and your character as much as your actions. Because people are watching. They will see your actions, but your attitude may undermine that which you just done. It says, it says in 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God doesn't love just a giver. He loves a cheerful giver. God wants your attitude and your actions to align. If we are going to be doing things for God, we need it to come from an intrinsic place, from our character. It needs to be something that we say, this is right because this is who I am, as opposed to I'll do this because it's the right thing to do. You know, we want to focus on developing and growing our character because the Cretans didn't. And we are not Cretans. We are Christ followers. So the world cares about your character. And your character is the compelling evidence of transformation in your life because of Jesus. My prayer for you is to live empowered, to live out your life publicly, reflecting God's goodness and showing compelling evidence of transformation in your life because of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we just pray that you would do your work in our lives. We pray that your grace and Holy Spirit, that your power would come and flood into our worlds, changing our character, transforming us to show compelling evidence of your goodness. God, we don't want to be credence. We don't want our attitude to undermine our actions. But Lord, we want to be people who, when we walk into the streets and the public life, people say, I need what they have. I need the truth that they have. Because, God, we don't know when you will come back. Lord, we don't know when this age of grace will finish. But, Lord, we know that right now the greatest evangelism tool we have is our lives. So, God, we just thank you. We thank you that you're good, that you're God, and you're still on the throne. In Jesus' name, we all say, Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the Freedom City Podcast. If there is any way that we can help you survive and thrive in your everyday life, we'd love to connect with you. If you'd want to know more about who we are, just head to www.freedomcityfremantle.com. Until next time, take care.